Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Kara Reedy, the Program Manager for Disability and Media Alliance Project, also known as DMAP. She's a journalist, an actor, a director, and a photographer. She worked at CNN for 10 years, produced documentaries, did some food writing, and reported on disability. And in 2019, she co-produced a short documentary for The Guardian called Dwarfism and Me. Her goal within her work in the media is to have disabled people control their own narratives. So please welcome to the show, Kara Reedy. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. What is the one thing you're most passionate about? Justice and equity, because for so much of my life, I haven't really received a lot of that. So it's made me kind of fighting mad about it. Everything I do, I believe should further the cause for other people like me, because at some point we have to stop treating people poorly. <laughs> Black people, disabled people, like all of the cross sections that I inhabit, but more than that. Once you start fighting in this space, it becomes more clear how much the system kind of keeps us down and it keeps everyone down. And I think that's what people don't really realize is that you may think that, okay, well, it's just the disabled people that are not doing well. And it's like, no, when disabled people aren't doing well, we're all actually not doing well because the system's broken. That means that system's broken. Take us back to your childhood. And, you know, you said that you feel like you've often been treated unfairly. So tell us about that growing up. I had a really good childhood, I, was, I would say. I have great parents and a great brother. So I didn't experience any of that at home. But when I went outside of my home space, there was a lot of, no, you can't do that. Whatever I wanted to do. There were a lot of barriers put up that had nothing to do with me, but had to do with other people's perceptions. I was a dancer. I still call myself a dancer because I started out when I was six and I had a wonderful dance teacher who was like, you can't do ballet just because of the way your legs are, but you can do all of these other things. Growing up from elementary school, I had this really great kind of support system between my parents, the dance teacher, Mrs. Wren, I'm gonna shout out her name. She's gone now, but she's amazing. When I hit high school, that's when I felt it. I was an actor too. Like I love performing. I perform all the time, even when I'm in the grocery store. Like this is just who I am. I like to tell stories and stuff. And but when I got to high school, there was a definite like, oh no, I don't think so. I don't think you really fit in the plays. And if you do, maybe you can go into a chorus, but kind of somewhere where we can't see you. I ended up my senior year trying to trick the system. And I figured out that if I tried out for a kid's part, they would have to give it to me. So I played a kid my senior year, which was super embarrassing, but I did it because I was like, well, I want to perform and I want to be in the senior play. So I'll play a kid. So I think I played Agnes in Meet Me in St. Louis. Well, all of these like sophomores were playing my big sister and there were times when there were dance choruses and I would try out. There was a, we did Anything Goes 
which is a tap show and like tap dancing is my that's my jam and so i go up to audition and the choreographer said do the time step i'm like sure did it because i've been doing the time step since i was six and then she said do the double time step okay did that do the triple did it and then she kind of looked at me because that's something you get when you're different you figure out people are testing you and trying to figure out how they can eliminate you quickly so she said okay and then i looked at her and i said you want me to do a quadruple like how far do you want me to go i know all of them and she went no that's fine when the call sheet was put up i was in like chorus b no dancing at all there were girls in the dance chorus who had never put on a tap shoe in their life Everyone's like, well, you know, she has a creative. People always mask prejudice in art. And well, that wasn't their creative vision. It's high school. What creative vision does this lady have? She's not going to Broadway. This is it for her. So like, what, what is this? And my dad just lost it, which he does sometimes. And he wrote her a note and just said, yeah, you're super prejudiced. I'm calling you out. Here you go. He handed me the letter. He said, don't read it. Don't say anything to anybody and just put it on her desk and walk away. I said, all right. So I did that in the morning, went to class and I was in the middle of Spanish class. There's a knock on the door. Also in the letter, he said to her, do not speak to Kara about this. And she went and knocked on the door, pulled me out of Spanish class to yell and cry at me about how unfair I was being and what did I tell my father and how dare you call me prejudiced? And she was bawling, like just flipping out, bawling. And I was just standing there, not in class while managing this grown woman's emotions. That to me was one of the pivotal moments in my childhood. I realized I don't really have protection because no one would do that. No one would do that to any other kid. They would never pull a kid out of a class. She ended up calling my, cause my dad left his phone number in the note and said, call me. And she ended up calling and I was in the house when she called and she was crying and screaming on the phone. She said, you called me racist. And he said, oh no, I called you prejudice for height. And he said, but now you make me think you're racist too. And then she flipped out. And then I ended up getting in the cor- in the dance chorus because she had no case. What could she say? There are girls that don't even own tap shoes in the chorus. I went from there to college where I was like, college is gonna be my space. And it wasn't <laughs> at all. I got into the theater program at Loyola. We did a freshman showcase. And everyone, I think we did a scene from Antigone and I played Antigone's sister. Everyone after the freshman showcase, all the teachers came up to me and said, you are talented, really talented. And I thought, oh my God, I'm here, I'm here. I did it, I got it, all right, great. And then the head of the department pulled me aside and he said, I wanna talk to you privately. So make a meeting with me. I'm 18, I don't know any, like I literally had just turned 18. I didn't know any better. So I was like, okay. And so I said, I 
I schedule an appointment with him and I go in and he says, I really want to work with you, but there's so many challenges with this, but we'll figure it out. 45-year-old Kara would understand what that meant. 18-year-old Kara thought, oh, he's going to work with me. And then year after year, there was nothing. His wife also taught there. She was my advisor. And I went to her and I said, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm an actor and I mostly just work on the crew. I don't know how to move past this. She said, well, dear. I think what you need to do is go write your own stuff. You're telling a 19-year-old who's paying thousands and thousands of dollars for you to train her that she needs to do it on her own. So I left for a year because I had a meltdown. And my mom said, you can do one of two things. You can transfer schools or you can go abroad for a year. Pick your poison. And I chose to go abroad and I studied it the Lee Strasberg Acting School in London, and it was fantastic. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. My teacher was Mariana Hill, who was in the Godfather movies. She was Fredo's wife, and she was also in a bunch of Elvis movies. Wacky lady, she's still alive, she's super awesome. And she was. it was the first time I was in an acting class where the teacher, first of all, trained me. Second of all, leaned down and said, you're very talented and I want you to keep going. And I almost lost it in there because it was the first time anyone had said it to me. I come back from London and I go to re-register at Loyola that summer. And I was staying with friends and we all went out drinking and the head of the department ended up out drinking with us, which is a different inappropriate, <laughs> like why was he out with us? But there you go. I turned to him and I said, listen, this is my senior year and I just came back from London. I was Lee Strasberg school. I did really well there. I learned a lot. What do I need to do to get into a show? And he said, hmm, well, if you really enjoyed it so much over there, you should go back. And oh, I melted down. I melted down in a way Immediately I had a meltdown, but then I also had like a midlife crisis at 21 where I didn't know what I was going to do. I took some paths that weren't the best after that. I graduated. My mom said just, I was a double major anyway, and she said drop theater. Just forget it. She didn't mean like forget it as in your life, but forget it at Loyola. And so I dropped it, graduated with a degree in political science, like got out in that year, pushed through, but I also started drinking heavily. And I'll be honest about that. Yeah, I started drinking because that was all I knew and I didn't know where I was going to go. Was it an option for you to return to London at that point? My mom just was like, we can't, they couldn't afford to sit because it was so expensive. And that's why they calculated that they could pay for a year there. Or if I transferred, I would probably have to do extra time in college. And so that was the calculation. I tried to go back because I also was in college over there, not only acting school. And the dean of the college, Professor Hilditch, I love this man, Scottish man. He tried his best and offered me scholarships. That's why I loved London so much, because I sort of found my place and my people. And I had a dean who loved me and was trying to figure out a way for me to stay. 
financially it just didn't work out. That was a big heartbreak. And I've never really returned fully to acting since then. I've been in and out of it. And I think that happens to a lot of people. When you experience trauma like that, you dip in and then someone says something the wrong way and you're like, okay, well, I'm out. <laughs> all right, that's enough of that. All right, okay. And I've done that. I did the improv scene and experienced some things there. <laughs> Ableism, sexism, like all of the things that people are reporting now, I saw. I never got raped or anything. There were a lot of people that did. And I had some friends that almost got raped in the improv scene. Nothing like that happened to me, but there was definitely an aura of misogyny that was really prevalent. And I don't think they've mastered that and gotten rid of it yet. So I dipped out of that. Because people were like, how come you didn't make a team? I was like, because I didn't even graduate from improv school. I dropped out. I've been in and out of sort of performance and that kind of space for years. I finally decided in 2017, after I quit CNN, that if I was going to be in performance or I was going to do any performance, then I had to control it. So I have from this point on is controlled everything I've done. I taught myself how to direct. I know how to produce because I worked at CNN for 10 years. So I learned those skills there, not by their choice, by mine, because they didn't want me to. But I was like, well, I'm here. I'm going to do it. Everything I've ever done, I've manipulated systems to get there. Because if I don't, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to ever walk in somewhere and they're going to be like, you're the one. Because that's not what people see when they see me. That's not the image of a little person. An image of a little person is a clown, someone that's not very serious, or someone that's super sad and kind of an isolated figure. I always get comments on the street. Sometimes people will come up and they want to like talk to me like I'm a pet. I smart off because that's who I am. And I'll get responses like, well, you're not very nice. I don't know why you expected me to be. You walked up to a random stranger on the street and decided that they would be nice because of their body. I'm not nice at all. I mean, I am nice, but not, not to randos on the street talking to me. Like That's not going to happen. You chose this. This is not my choice for you. It was not great for me, CNN. It was great, and it also was not great. I learned a lot. I know a lot of things about production, about how networks work, how decisions are made, but that's by accident. That's because I was in rooms where people didn't know I existed. Like they knew I existed, like, you know, doorknobs exist, but they don't think of you as a thinking human being that can take this information in and use it. The 10 years at CNN was awful. How did you last so long there? That seems like a long time to put up with that. I mean, I tried to get out multiple times. I applied for other jobs. But early in my career, I was working for a particular anchor. I won't name that person. I went to this person and said, I'd like to produce. I was their assistant. They said, okay, you know, yeah, I think you actually be pretty good at that. 
every time I would get like a little project to do, they would spend that time kind of sabotaging my time. But I would still get it done and get it done really well. But because I was running this person's life, they weren't into me doing other things, even though I was running their life and doing it, because I understood that that was the deal. Like I couldn't shirk my duties on the other side, but it just was not, that person was like, no way, no way. And so that was a pretty brutal, that person actually started sabotaging my work in really, really gross ways. And I've kind of never talked publicly about this. People know, but I've never spoken publicly about it. And there's, I can't get into too much detail about it, but I will tell you the, I got fired from that job because they couldn't really pin anything on me because there was nothing to pin. It was all this weird, like, whoa, you're not managing her expectations and blah, blah, blah. And like all these weird words. And the uh, final straw, I was, I was leaving and I was going, but I was staying at CNN, but going to a different job. And the executive producer who had been my champion up until that point, you know, it was my last day with this person. And they said, I want to speak with you before the day ends. Cause it was also the holidays. So it was like everybody's last day before the break. And I said, okay. And my friend who sat with me, was an assistant too. She looked at me and said, you cannot cry in that meeting. Do not show any emotion. And I was like, okay. And she was right. Like totally right but I needed her to sort of prep me. And so I got into the meeting and it was just a character assassination. He said, we thought you would be good at production. You're not, you're not ever gonna go anywhere in it. We really had high hopes for you, but it's not, you should not pursue, you, you can't pursue it. He said, but you're going to be an assistant again. And I think this will be a good move for you. I said, okay, okay okay walked out he walked out smile he walked out smiling like he had done something great and left and then i am just crying that was another pretty dark period after that conversation because i was stuck we basically what they had done was all of the credits that i'd worked up towards those past two years they erased they just completely erased it so i was an assistant again and every time I try, would try to tell someone that I had done all this other stuff, they would sort of look at me like, you're crazy. That didn't happen. And no one would vouch for me. So I was done. That was also why I couldn't get out of CNN because I kept getting kind of punched. I didn't have any credit, so I couldn't leave. So I kind of got stuck. No one believed me and I had no references. So I went off to be an assistant again. And I was an assistant until I left. I ended up in a safer space. I won't call it safe, but a safer space when I went to the digital side. I had a boss that kind of just was like, listen, you can do whatever you want to do and just get your job done. So I started writing there. I actually started writing because I knew that no one could take it away from me. And once you get a byline, it's yours and it's part of the internet is written in ink. 
I went to Kat Kinsman, who is now at Food and Wine, and she was starting the Etocracy blog. And I just went to her. I was like, "Can I write for you?" Never written about food, but I'll figure it out. She said, "Yep." And so she gave me a break. She gave me the two biggest breaks at CNN. There was that one, and then she was doing a series where people could kind of like talk about their biggest. I don't want to say fear, but it's kind of talk about their feelings around something that makes them different. And so she had me write about being a little person and what that's like. And that was in 2014, and it went viral, translated into other languages, went all over the place. So without Cat, I wouldn't be here. She really saw me and kind of helped me and propelled me and did great things. She was one of the only people, like in my career, that just didn't have any idea whether I could do it, but said, "Let's try." It just worked. It's been a long road. That's why I think I'm so passionate about it never happening to anyone else because it's so brutal and expensive, quite frankly, to deal with this stuff. I haven't had a full time job since CNN. I mean, not until I went to DMAP and. That's because I couldn't. I was so messed up in the head. Because when people spend years telling you that you know and absolutely not, and why would you even think that? I'm giving like the big picture of what happened at CNN. There were so many microaggressions that happened there, where people would come up to me, and you know, when I would write a piece, they would come up to me and be like, "Who knew you could write?" and What do you mean? Who knew I could write? Well, I did. This must be some kind of like magical thing that you just come out writing. I'm like, no, I went to college. I worked for somebody at some company who was like, oh, I don't know where to find black writers. Um, and at the time, Ebony was still around. Essence was still around. I'm like, go poach, go poach all those people. They're clearly talented. You got BT down the street. I mean, that's why those places exist. Disabled people don't sort of have those spaces yet, so we're locked out. In we're locked out everywhere. I had a meeting with somebody recently, and they said, "Oh, working on a project, and you were referred. Have you ever covered this subject?" And I said, "No." And they were like, "Oh, like kind of like why did you? Why am I being referred to you?" And I said, "I haven't covered it because I haven't been allowed to cover it." No one's been allowed to cover it. Like no disabled people have been allowed to cover it. I said, "Are there people that could cover it?" Yeah, let me name some people that could cover it. And they're like, "Oh," and and like I'm not blaming that person because they were they were just literally trying to find people. Like that's that's not what I'm saying here. It's it's that there's because we aren't seen, no one knows where to start, and there's people that out there like I was talking to the other day. He's actually actively like, okay, how do we do this? Like, let's do this. So there are, I, I feel like there are people all of a sudden waking up to the fact that there are disabled people in the world that need to have their issues covered, and they need to be in film, they need to be in all of these places. So it's starting at DMAP. I'm trying to push it forward faster, a little faster, because I'm impatient. And I'm like, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on, guys. 
We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Cara Reedy. To learn more about Cara, follow her on Instagram at infamously short. To learn more about the Disability Media Alliance Project, go to d-map.org. Now here's more of our interview with Cara. Tell us more about what DMAP does and how did you get involved with them? Actually, Lawrence Carter-Long, who's the director of DMAP and of communications for DREDF, which is our parent nonprofit, it's Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. Right after I did uh, the doc, Dwarfism and Me, one of my friends from CNN, one of my good friends who actually saw all of the things that happened to me, he was at NBC at the time, and he emailed me and he goes, why isn't this mine about dwarfism? You gave this to somebody else. I'm like, whoa, first of all, it wasn't my initial idea. And he's like, well, we should talk about doing something together. So we ended up talking about it. And then as the news business does, about a week after I sent him the proposal, he got laid off. He said, ugh, he said, I'm out. But let me transfer you, it won't be the big doc we were thinking of, but let me transfer you to this smaller department and maybe we can get something cooking there for you. I pitched this very small thing. It's about inspiration porn because it's something I want to kill. It's my goal to murder all of it. Before all of this is over, inspiration porn will be dead, I've decided. We were going to do this little thing and I wanted... I really wanted to find someone that has either written about inspiration porn or has been the subject of it. Lawrence was a March of Dimes poster child. So in my research, I found Lawrence and I was like, he was a poster child. So I called him and he, we ended up talking and he came in and did the interview. Then about a month later, he messaged me and he said, can we, can we set up a Zoom chat? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, I want, some, I want to talk to you about something. And he said, I really think that you should come work, get this DMAP started. And it, DMAP's been going on since 2008, but there's sort of like this resurgence now that they're trying to build it up. And Judith Human, who's in Crip Camp and is the leader of the disability civil rights movement, she's, is, uh, she wrote a paper for Ford that actually started this new iteration of DMAP. Lawrence called me in and I interviewed with him basically. And then I interviewed with Judy and then I interviewed with Susan, who's the executive director, Susan. Then they brought me on and that's how it started. But what we've decided is we're going to do is sort of be, we're the infrastructure, the support system for disabled creatives, journalists, all the things that I never had, I'm building up for everyone. That's my goal. So we're starting the Disabled Journalist Association. We're starting really focusing on journalism. So we're doing some programming uh, where we take issues that the news media hasn't quite covered as a disability issue. And we're going to really deep dive into it, but all of the programs are going to be run by disabled journalists. And then we're going to invite 
the other news media in to see it so that they can see what they've been missing, not only in content, but also people so that they can see, oh, I can't find a disabled journalist. Yes, you can. It's right here. It's right here. It's all right here. Come look, take your pick. That's our goal. Disabled creators in particular don't get the support that other creators get. I did a lot of interviews over the summer, not only with journalists, but actors and comedians. Like, what is it that you need? And a lot of it is basic stuff. Like, I need captioning or I can't find a job. I don't know. I don't have the network to find a job. So we're trying to build all those networks, so those connections, so that people can come and find us. And if we don't have it right then, then we'll go between Lawrence, me, Judy, Susan, like we'll, we'll figure it out for them, which is because when you're a disabled creator, you're really by yourself most of the time because nobody wants you to do it anyway. People are like, ah, just give that up. So we're actually working with Selene Luna, who was a previous passionista, and we've had a lot of deep conversations over the last month. And a lot of it was, well, people told me not to talk about my disability because no one will like that. I used to hear that in journalism too, where I would pitch stories about disabled people and it was always, oh, nobody wants to know. Oh God, that's too much. No one will click on that. That's depressing. It's like, but 26% of the population is disabled. Just for business purposes, you are leaving 26% of the population's money on the table and walking away from it because you're afraid. And how many people are actually disabled in this room, but won't say it because you say things like this? Like, how do you get there when no one wants to talk about it? What can we, as people who don't have disabilities, what can we be doing to be better advocates and allies? I think the biggest thing is listening. Because there's so much, especially in the disability space, there's so much talking being done by non-disabled people. For us in particular, because our agency has been taken away and it, you know, people are like, well, we have to give disabled people agency. It's like, no, they already have it. Like you just have to stop talking. I think that's the biggest thing because some people will be like, I don't know what to do about the disabled people. Well, be quiet, like, and listen, because there's all these movements and things happening within the disability community that no one knows about because no one's listening or they'll go to some organization that is not run by disabled people those people will like have ideas about what disabled people want and it maybe isn't maybe you going to them is probably not the best thing and not to say that there's not advocates that are non-disabled. There's a lot of parents that are really good at it. But for this, for a while, can we just listen to disabled people? Like truly listen to them. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Kara Reedy. To learn more about Kara, follow her on Instagram at infamously short. To learn more about the Disability Media Alliance Project, go to d-map.org. 
Please visit thepassionistasproject.com to learn more about our podcast and our subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire you to follow your passions. Sign up for our mailing list to get 10% off your first purchase. And be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.